VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, it's me, your god wizard, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your rich Corinthian Sikh warlord. To the last, I will grapple with thee. Yummy, yummy. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Bruiser, Jake, and we are covering the best Star Trek movie maybe I've ever seen. It's it's a fucking banger. What if two old men who never are in the same room with each other just fucking hate each other? That's right. Star Trek And shoot two. lasers. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, 1982, American sci-fi film directed by Nicholas Meyer and written by Jack B. Sowards, among others. We'll get into that. Um, and it's the whole gang of the original OG Star Trek crew um, f- pitted against... Ricardo Montalban's Khan, uh, the just enduring character nemesis, perfect foil for uh, William Shatner's Captain Kirk. And this movie is so interesting to me as I was talking to Jake before, because he was like, what is the hook of this episode? And to me, it's like everything about the research I did for this leads to a one of those episodes we do where we talk about a failure. You know, because every now and again, I'm looking at you, Virtual Boy, there's certain episodes we do where we go, hey, let's talk about how something like didn't super succeed, didn't gain that giant fandom or whatever it is, fell apart in some way, um, and see if we can learn from that as well as all of the episodes we do about successes. This, to me, in the research would spell absolute certain doom between the cost cutting dropping the original creator from the project this that and the other and yet it is the most i think you know i would say most successful not only that uh uh most successful star star trek movie but also essentially saved the franchise we don't know that we would have a next generation much less a movie series uh without the success of this film as, uh, you know, because of how it fit into the timeline of where Star Trek was at when it came out. Uh, and also, you know, I always look at this year. This is such a crazy year for movies. Like, you had E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark. I feel like we've already covered a bunch of movies that came out this summer because that's how strong this summer was for especially nerd shit and, and sci-fi and all sorts of stuff. And... Uh, so I, I knew I knew we had to do Wrath of Khan at some point. And I always wanted to do Wrath of Khan because I'd never seen it. So I was so happy to have an excuse ah. to finally watch this film. And it did not disappoint Jay. So I definitely um this you know, just the the Khan yell. Uh, Ricardo Montalban's performance, uh, the death of Spock, spoiler alert, I guess. The next movie is called Search for Some, whatever. It's very, it, you, you've uh, just the radiation chamber, uh, just it's so quotable and so iconic. It definitely like affected the Gen Xers that like that went on to make the media that I grew up uh, just obsessed with as a millennial. Um, Hell, even Ricardo Montalban in Freakazoid just is constantly making Wrath of Khan references uh, in that show. And what I really love about it is just how kind of it stands alone. Like the movie doesn't hit unless you love Star Trek. And the fact that they had to completely 
disengage from the established Star Trek kind of uh, creative team in order to make it to kind of reconnect with what made this franchise so uh, enthralling for people. And in a way, up until it's like, you know, up until it's release, the fans were furious with it. They were furious with uh, the leaked knowledge that Spock was going to die. They were upset with uh, just how they were like completely changing the cast and the director with this unknown guy. You know, they really just did not realize that to to save Trek, you kind of had to stop being reverent for it. You kind of had to like go back to basics, figure out what was it that made it work, especially because the uh, first movie, Star Trek, the motion picture is so slow and weird and muted and sad and long. I was talking to uh, my my dad, who was, uh, you know, kind of my go to guru who introduced me to, you know, superheroes and Star Wars and Star Trek and all the things he loved. And uh, he was like, <laughs> uh, I still think I'm trapped in that theater watching the Enterprise <laughs> and docking. That's just how slow that first movie is. Also, I just want to get this right off the bat. There are two, the two most popular, I think, in the in the collective unconscious about this movie, the two like greatest memes and urban legends are uh, a little bit, are not exactly what they at first appear to be. Uh, number one, Ricardo Montalban was not wearing a prosthetic peck thing. <laughs> and we, we, this was up for a lot of debate. This was, us, by this the way. Was this pure... went way too long. We all, Jake just declared that it was the, just like the beginning of, the of our most, watching like, it together. It just, it, the people joke about it. It's like, it's just part of the the, the zeitgeist about this movie. And, and luckily we watched together on the Sunday study session, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, the $50 tier on Discord. So we had fellow researchers uh, there to point out Jake's folly and say it's no, not, this it's is, a generational folly. I'm does, saying we are all a folly. lot of push-ups. He's earned those giant packs, my friend. Uh, that was a big part of how he. Got if the you role, look at Jake. senior bodybuilders, it is weird <laughs> that like they got these like wrinkly faces, but then below the neck. They are like still cut and like pumped up and like they look they look pretty swollen great. And the I feel like Khan's outfit, which was made to kind of uh, draw attention to Montalban's knock, uh, musculature, has this weird thing going on where he's wearing this like giant necklace that literally kind of splits his like old man head and toned body in a way that it feels unreal. <laughs> it feels out of place. Yes. It's, you know, this this rich Corinthian leather weathered face. And then below the neck, it is just pure plateaus of young, fresh muscle. And I, I understand how homoerotic I'm being right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, you got to root. Listen, you respect a fit old man when you see one. The second great meme is, of course... Kirk's iconic God! yell, yeah. uh, which uh, many people point to as a classic kind of uh, example of William Shatner's, I would say, unique uh, acting style, which uh, with his unique rhythms, his, his choices of overacting or underacting. Many hardcore Trek fans swear up and down. I've seen the Reddit threads that the meme of Kirk losing his shit yelling Khan is actually, actually Kirk being a bad actor, not Shatner. And in fact, Shatner is an even better actor for figuring out that Kirk would have to play up his anger because at this stage in the tete-a-tete chess match between the strategic minds, he's trying to make sure that Khan believes that he's won this round in order to buy himself the time to get back on the Enterprise. You know, there's that whole exchange where Spock is like, that's right, we'll be out of commission for several days if we do it by the book. Mm. And they're sharing this code knowing, like, actually, we can come get you, like, real quick. Like, don't worry. And so the ah! yell is solely for Khan's benefit as an ego boost to make him think that he really fucked with Kirk. Also, uh, he doesn't scream, Kevin! That's actually <laughs> Catherine O'Hara in the film Home Alone. Uh, I just wanted to get that out of the way, but I think uh, this movie does a great job of uh, kind of 
giving, like actually telling a story about these characters. It's really focused on Kirk and coming to terms with his own past, whether it's with his uh, estranged son that he didn't know about or Khan, this like one-off villain that he just like kind of never gave a second thought about. And I love the meta narrative idea that it's like, if you watch the original episode Space Seed, they thaw Ricardo Montalban as Khan, the Northern Indian Sikh warrior. Don't don't worry about it. They don't they they ditch the brown face in the movie in the original episode. He's very tan. And they're like, I'm going to drop you off on this planet and you're going to have to make a go of it. Have fun on SETI Alpha 5. The end. Yeah. And the movie starts with uh, Chekhov being like. All right, we're on SETI Alpha 6, and oh, fuck, it's Khan. And Khan's (laughs) like, you never checked on me. My family is dead. My bros are dead. I fucking hate you. Yeah, totally. It's... it's such a great idea for sure uh, for a premise for the movie. So, so, so cleverly conceived by a whole group of people. And uh, I'm really excited to get to tell the story. And, and I just love to, before we get into it, just a little bit more gush, how unique it is, especially for the time. Like, let's not do like crazy fast paced dog fights. Let's do like a submarine approach a nautical approach to, to make this really tense, unique space battle happen. Uh, also, you know, yeah, the whole part where they're never in the same room together and it just does not matter. In fact, it works so much better that way. There were so many cool, interesting swings that make this very un Star Trek, Star Trek movie, incredibly Star Trek, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. It is, it is just weirdly, it's like it, it it's like a Schrodinger's cat of Star Trek movies. Like it's both a totally a Star Trek film and totally super not one. And it's all because of the story that leads up to it. So let's get into it. For a little background, the original series, which we have covered, of course, on a previous episode, that runs from 1966 to 1969, and it isn't until 1987 that we get The Next Generation. In between that rift, we have, as Jake already mentioned, Star Trek, the motion picture, which is released in 1979. Uh, The first movie actually, though, actually did pretty well in the box office, though at the time, it was just seen in a really negative light because of the critical response and the audience response, you know? But I think people still came out for a Star Trek movie, but I think the production, the producers and everybody, the studios understood they made another one like that. It would be like an absolute fucking bomb. They had to change it up. Oh, the production was incredibly fraught. This was... A, and uh, we don't even we don't have time. It would require its own episode to go through all the steps that got that first movie made. But it was basically Ron Berry had been envisioning a sequel series, an updated series to to bring Trek back with the original cast with a few new characters for years. There were pilots made. There were scripts. There were revisions, everything. And they finally decide to make it into a movie. More changes, more uh, more things shifted around. They didn't have an ending when they first started shooting. They had to scrap all of the effects because they wanted to. Uh, they went with a company that promised to do it all digitally, and they just completely went over budget. And the results were not up to snuff. They had to completely redo all that. Like it was a incredibly fraught production. So even though it made uh, it did well in the box office. For Paramount executives, it really wasn't worth the trouble. Mm -hmm. And so going into it, the question was, are they even going to do another Star Trek movie was really up for debate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And so... They knew at least uh, that they needed to get rid of Gene Roddenberry, uh, who submitted a treatment for a second film. This film centered around stopping the Klingons from uh, stopping the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Mm. Is that would change the course of time and 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 have all these negative effects for for Earth. And uh, it really feels more like a Romulan plan. That really yeah. that's like some more that's some d- a covert ops Romulan bullshit. I feel like the Klingons would just be like. Instead of stopping the assassination, we should behead Kennedy and make him swear and claim Jackie O as our queen. Piss inside his skull, and then we'll be, you know, and then we'll be Klingon party after that. We'll have a Klingon party. Only four people will die. We promise. Kapla! Um, yeah. Revenge is a dish best served in a skull full of piss. And Paramount rejected the JFK storyline. Uh, they just, especially because. 
kind of what you're already talking about. Roddenberry, very, very slow at the writer's desk and uh, constantly sending in new drafts in a way that, you know, I've heard this work for other movies. It's it's Kubrick did this a lot. People like that. I feel like it was a little different, though, because he's this auteur director. But um, they really didn't want to be receiving new pages like the day before or day of shooting. You know, it just was not. They did not even know what the big dumb spaceship was supposed to be when they started filming. Mm -hmm. They wanted it to be just this like in I think Ron Berry wrote an actual novel that basically laid all this out where it was like a a future spaceship from another dimension that was so beyond our comprehension that like it was, you know, it was supposed to humble everybody and show that there's still so many more advanced worlds out there. Uh, And the idea that it was just the Voyager spacecraft was something that they kind of just slapped together at the end. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So Roddenberry is replaced by this dude named Harv Bennett. And if he's that name sounds like a used car salesman, he really kind of was. He came in and he was there to make a Star Trek movie on a dime. He was the showrunner for such hits as the Six Million Dollar Man, the Bionic Woman. He's a TV guy. He knows how to spin a fucking show out of his ass, plop it right in front of you as a dish best served stinky and hot. And you ate it, didn't you? You fucking weirdo. You ate it and ate it and ate it up. Listen, Aaron Spelling is a genius. (laughs) And if this man allowed Aaron Spelling's vision to be reality, then so be it. Uh, Do you have the thing about where they did the meeting with the Paramount yeah. bigwigs. Uh, at this time, Paramount was a subsidiary of the Gulf Western Corporation uh, where they sat Bennett down and was like, can you do this? And he was like, listen, from where I, from the world I live in, I could make 15 movies with like the budget. Yeah, with the budget of the first one. He's like, I'm going to make this for fucking absolutely nothing for you guys. And I'm going to reuse sets and models and anything I can get my hands on from the original movie, even actual full on just shots from the first movie. My favorite, my favorite thing in terms of the cost cutting in this movie is that 60% of the film Wrath of Khan Mm -hmm. was shot on the exact same set with minor changes made because uh, whether it was the Enterprise or the Reliant or even the uh, training simulator, it was all the same set just with the chairs moved around. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And hey, guess what? I didn't give a fuck. (laughs) You know, I mean, that just really straight up. They they, the 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 writing, the characters, the plot was so compelling. It's almost like you just don't need it. Oh, I also love that um, the regular one uh, research station that created the Genesis project is literally just a space station model from the first movie that they already used just flipped upside down. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. But the problem in production at this point for Harv is that he uh, hasn't even watched the original series. So uh, he'd only seen the first movie. He found that film to be extremely boring, like so many other people uh, did. Uh, so he's watching the show now, and he happens upon the episode Space Seed and realizes two things. The first movie was lacking and that it did not contain a true villain. And this Khan Noonien Singh character from the original series was the perfect guy for the job Bennett said 
I came to love the triangle between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And that became the basis of what I wanted to do with Star Trek. Somewhere along the way, I ran the episode Space Seed, and it was like God had sent a present down to me. Space Seed ends having deposited Khan, played by Ricardo Montalban, on some desolate planet. And Kirk, I think it was, saying, if we came back in 25 years, I wonder what he'd be like. (laughs) And Spock says, hmm. I jumped out of my seat and said, Thank you, God. Thank you. That's it. That's my story. And it happened just like that. Uh, a few, well, not just like that. Now we have to write a script. So it's, uh, no, it's, 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 it's very apt because the classic, you know, uh, tr- you know, Trinity of Bones, Kirk, and Spock is like the id, the ego, and the superego, with Bones being a very uh, humanistic person that, you know, is empathetic and kind of sees the morality in things. Uh, Spock is the cold, hard, logical one, and Kirk has to navigate the two and kind of add his own, like, little panache to it. And in Space Seed, they get their shit thoroughly wrecked by Khan, who is this genetically engineered super warlord from the eugenics wars and some future point in human history. And he is like completely in touch with his own inner morality, his own drive to power and his own loyalty to his people in a way that just completely sidewinds the entire Enterprise crew. He seduces a hottie redhead, (laughs) Ensign MacGyvers, who fucking switched sides for him and agrees to live on a wasteland planet, which is like, you know, you're again, you're living, you're living in Star Trek post scarcity, ideal human world. And like when given the chance is like, all right, now Ensign MacGyvers, you're, you realize you're going to leave a air conditioned super utopia in order to, I'm checking my notes here, uh, give birth to wet babies on dry dust. (laughs) And she's like, hell yeah, for this fucking dude, I'm going to do it. So Harv, again, to cut corners on costs, uh, writes a treatment himself, but then he brings in Jack B. Sowards, to first uh, put oh a script down. Jack B. Sowards is a huge Star Trek fan. He wrote an initial draft of the treatment, and it's actually he who is responsible for even getting Leonard Nimoy to sign on for another Star Trek film. Leonard, uh, classically, we talked about this, uh, and I believe that uh, first, uh, or that initial episode we did on the original series, but Leonard Nimoy wrote a book at one point in his life that, that was titled I Am Not Spock, and he really... kind of tried to distance himself from the character at a certain point in his career. He later would write another book called I Am Spock and really come back around to embrace it. And this is a little bit of the story of that. He, uh, uh, Sowards, uh, he's at a point with this character that Sowards brilliantly asked Nimoy directly, Leonard, how would you like to play Spock's death scene? And this was the only way they could get Nimoy excited to do the movie. So this is weirdly up in the air because I I don't know what is real and what isn't real. What is like you know publicity, uh, but supposedly Spock was not that like hateful towards the character. He did write the book because he was frustrated with typecasting, but his real reluctance in a lot of these reunion things was over missing royalties. He had a legal dispute with uh, Desilu or Gulf Western or Paramount or whatever entity currently ran Star Trek. And that is why he was always the last to sign on up until a lot of the the movies. And during the filming of Wrath of Khan, he often remarked that like, oh, it's a shame I got to go. I kind of, you know, I like where this is going. This is a really great story. It's a really great like kind of operation he got going. And apparently it was uh, also Harv Bennett worked with Nimoy on a uh, direct-to-television movie called A Woman Called Golda about Golda Meir, who uh, he was like already chummy with Nimoy and got him involved as well. Also, a thing that I saw uh, was uh, in Soward's script, it was uh, the big MacGuffin was going to be a super weapon called the Omega Syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it was Bennett and uh, Myers were like, I don't know about this. And it was art director Michael Miner who was like, 
What if instead of like a killing device, it's like a terraforming thing? We could call it, I don't know, the Genesis. And uh, Bennett supposedly hugged Minor and said, you saved the movie. Yeah, another thing Sowards brought to the script, though, was uh, the Kobayashi Maru no-win scenario training exercise, something that has been referenced time and time again since its creation. Uh, this, oh, this ex- They love it. This whole exercise that uh, they would make their crew undergo new members to you know, essentially try to get through this no-win situation, and then Kirk, uh, classically, like he sort of cheats to and reprograms it so he can win, and that's a big part of this story and uh, this movie. But but it comes back time and time again. This is actually named after a neighbor of Sowards, uh, and uh, that's just the one weird fact about it. But it really is uh, one of those cool like little nuggets that ends up being such an important part of the whole franchise. They're still struggling to get a finished version of the script uh, with production deadlines looming over their head. And they bring in another guy. They bring in Nicholas Meyer to finish it off. Now, Meyer, he's known for writing and directing the sci-fi film time after time, this really smartly done time travel movie uh, involving, you know, fish out of water. It's about was Jack the Ripper, right? It's uh, Malcolm McDowell. Uh, in a rare hero turn as H.G. Wells, who accidentally uh, gets Jack the Ripper sent to our modern era. And it's kind of this Holmesian versus Moriarty, two clever Victorian bros just like Mm -hmm. hunting after each other and trying to like save, uh, trying to, you know, outfox each other. This is legit. The uh, the Cindy Lauper song "Time After Time" was inspired by the movie, and if you listen to the lyrics, it's like, <laughs> "If you fall, I will catch you. I will find you." Like it, kind of the themes kind of like match up in a way that you don't really uh, expect. That's funny. Weird legacy again tied to this movie. So Meyer also has not seen an episode of Star Trek for fuck's sake. Uh, here's here's his quote about. All the, uh, coming into the project. The chief contribution I brought to Star Trek 2 is a healthy disrespect. Star Trek was human allegory in space format. That was both its strength and ultimately its weakness. I tried through irreverence to make them more human and a little less wooden. I didn't insist that Captain Kirk go to the bathroom, but did Star Trek have to be so sanctified? And I will say it did come full circle for Star Trek 3. Kirk takes a giant dump, which <laughs> is my favorite. Honestly, I'm, I'm kind of sad we're not doing that one he's today. like oh, i'm about to do a genesis of my own but that's how we get to earworms and a hair metal front man as the villain and you know just a, a more colorful interesting it's again star trek not star trek and it's why we got a shift away from larger sci-fi concepts and more towards rich character portrayals with Khan so obsessed with revenge he turns his back on his own people kirk feeling old and out of touch spock becoming the teacher meyer asked the team working on the project to give him a list of everything that they liked from the previous drafts of the movie. And he, for no pay or credit, took all of this, pumps out a new script containing all of it, and so impresses everybody on the production that he ends up getting the keys to the director car. That's how we get there. It really is like uh, Myers, kind of a fish out of water walking into this cast, this production, this, this, this uh, creative circle that is already like has all this baggage and just kind of cutting through the bullshit. Even just like dealing with the fandom, Bennett had wanted Spock's death to come super early, kind of like doing a psycho thing where like you think you know what the protagonist is and they're just taken out immediately. And that script leaked and Trekkers went wild, going so far as to threaten to kill Leonard Nimoy if the character died, which is <laughs> one of the most fucked up things you could do. Yeah, they ended up actually changing it. So that, that's why you get the Leonard Nimoy Spock death early on, the fake out death, as a way to try to get audiences who had got the leak to uh, be deceived yet again, thinking, oh, it was just a fake death. And mm-hmm. then they really kill him later on. Another big thing that Meyer brought to the script 
was using the Hornblower series as inspiration for the film. This is a series that spawned TV show, movies, radio programs. It's all centered around a fictional officer of the British Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. And that's where we get all these nautical themes. I mean, even their costumes reflect a nautical theme. And of course, that Nebula battle, which we'll talk about a little bit more oh, later yeah. on, uh, that thing is clearly like a submarine showdown, which I think wonderfully contrasts from a lot of what like Star Wars and stuff like that with that high speed kind of mm-hmm. crazy dogfight kind of stuff. It, it, it did a good job as like a answer to that, like a different a different way to do a space battle. In a Horatio Hornblower story or any kind of naval epic of the era, every cannon salvo changed the entire like pace of the battle. Every shot had consequences. And you absolutely feel that when watching Rathacon. Mm-hmm. Every phaser volley, every photon torpedo completely changes the math of what is happening on screen. And it's if you watch a lot of modern Trek, it's just it feels like one of those like big CG fights from the Star Wars prequels at some points. There's just ships and lasers flying everywhere. He also, Meyer also really leaned heavily on the militarization of Starfleet, something that Roddenberry, who was still kind of complaining in the background as a creative consultant. Yeah, at this point, he was living in the rafters and he wore a mask (laughs) that hit half of his face. Um, There was a masquerade ball at one point during the production that he ended up sabotaging. But it is Mm -hmm. a fascinating story, kind of a love story with him this whole time as the phantom of the... (laughs) production of Star Trek 2 rather but like it's in this if you look at the costumes in Star Trek the motion picture the first one it's very muted everybody's Uh kind of it kind of looks like they're wearing pajamas they feel they you know it's beiges and grays and light blues and the uh the officer uh uniform with the deep red color all the little like military pins and sigils and everything from service done in support of Starfleet, Uh, even stuff like uh, the little computer boatswain whistle that they used to announce like entries and stuff was very much stuff that Myers brought in. Meyer, I keep saying Myers, Meyer brought in and uh, it really like, yeah, Roddenberry hated it. (laughs) Then when you add James Horner's soundtrack with like the blaring French horns and the little military drum like motifs it really kind of makes you realize this is a battle vessel when it needs to be mm-hmm. absolutely there's a great story i listened to uh myers uh director's commentary when i was rewatching the movie and he tells a story about how he uh had a meeting with william shatner who had come up to him and said that the script was an absolute disaster one of the things about this production was that shatner really on in a weird mirror to kirk hated the idea of uh, having to portray himself as losing a step, of getting Uh older, of not being the leading man capable and virile that he thought himself to be. And so uh, Meyer had a meeting with with Shatner, and uh, after going back and forth, he was really, Meyer wasn't sure what even Kirk wanted, but he made a minor change to the script and got a voicemail back from uh, Shatner, who called him a genius, said it was perfect. And during the actual filming, whenever Shatner got a little pissy, Meyer had a tape player on hand and would <laughs> play the audio of Shatner calling him a genius to just shut him up sometimes. Um, in the commentary, he talks a lot about how um, some of his best takes from Shatner were when he just made him redo stuff over and over again to the point where he got bored. And uh, bored Shatner was actually him not overacting. And so that's what he like really wanted during uh, one of the first like big fake outs where Shatner is like trying to get the prefix codes to take over the Reliant and is like stalling for time. It took Shatner six takes where every time he would say something like, here it comes or like, "Ooh, here it comes, like really trying to like ham it up. Which would not work because, you know, we're trying to sell Khan as a capable and intelligent villain who'd be like, oh, you're trying to trick me. Fuck you. (laughs) Uh, And so it was after wearing him down that like the, you know, distracted, disgruntled Kirk just being like, here it comes. 
is what made it to the movie. <laughs> and that was just Shatner checking out because he was sick of Meyer. Well, if we're getting into the cast, then let's also talk about Ricardo Montalban reprising his role as Khan. Montalban initially became a big movie star in Mexico, and that eventually got him a long-term contract with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer uh, MGM that set him up with a solid career in Hollywood starting in the late 40s. This is when you would just sign to a one studio and they would dictate your entire career. Uh, he was also largely known for his character Armando in the Planet of the Apes films before starring as Khan. Also, though, for Nicholas and Nicholas Meyer's sake, Meyer felt that Montalban was like this incredibly underused actor in Hollywood. And when he came in to do the role, uh, Meyer even discussed how he was he was worried he was such an old dog at this that he wouldn't be down for a lot of direction, but he actually was incredibly open to a lot of direction. And they had a great working relationship. And he just seems like this really professional, really like warm awesome dude and he so deserves his due for this role i mean it's real it's you know i hate to use overused words like shakespearean but man when it's like i mean they're literally pulling from shakespeare so yeah. it's obviously it's shakespearean but it re- he really takes it to such high levels of drama and intensity in this way that makes his performance incredibly iconic i mean he's just he He's operating at a fucking 10 the whole time and it works so well. Oh, no, he's not operating at a 10, which is well, an what, actor's So 10, this is I a story. I found footage of Meyer telling the story and I even found footage of Montalban telling this story. And it basically boils down to at this point in Montalban's career, he was Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Island. Deplane, Deplane, you know. Fantasy Island. Uh-huh. And he talks about how an actor's least favorite thing to do is exposition. Because you're literally just calmly explaining something that the audience needs to know. And there's very little room for you to make any choices because you're just explaining a thing. And, you know, every episode of Fantasy Island would be like, ah, this is Mrs. McGillicuddy. She always wanted to live in a mansion. But little does she realize that, like, living in a mansion can suck a little. Like, he was very bored. And this was his first, like, real meaty role in a while. He rewatched Space Seed over and over again, trying to get in touch with it. But when he made it to set, uh, which they had to do months ahead of the rest of shooting because of his schedule on Fantasy Island, it's one of the reasons why he's never in the same room with any of the main cast. He is going full supervillain mode. He is... Hitting his marks, he is making, you know, he has the lines down, he knows exactly what he's doing, but all of his lines are just like, Ah, Chekhov, you son of a bitch, my wife has died because of you, Kirk, I will have my revenge, like just, just bellowing. Right. And uh, Meyer immediately realized this isn't going to work. He uh, says, oh, hey, uh, Ricardo, why don't we talk in the trailer uh, while they fix the lighting? We got to get the lighting fixed for the next shot. And he sits Montalban down, and this is Hollywood royalty, literally has been on the same screen as, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra and all these golden age greats. And he's like, you know, Ricardo, uh, Lawrence Olivier has a saying that a good actor never shows his top, which uh, is not a sexual thing. It's about how if there's nowhere- well, he showed his top anyways <laughs> at that point with his pectorals. He was not talking about his glistening, bronze, healthy pectoral <laughs> muscles. Uh, he was trying to explain that, you know, a good actor can never show the height because there's nowhere to go for the rest of the movie. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, you got to like tone it down a little. And Montalban is silent for a second and looks him in the eye and goes, oh, you're going to direct me, huh? <laughs> Meyer, uh, his heart shakes for a second because that's a very threatening thing. And Montalban says, oh, thank God, I have no idea what I'm doing. Thank you. And the rest of the performance of Khan in the movie is just a simmering menace. He had is when the anger comes out, it is still dignified. It is still reserved. He is like a shark in the water. Mm-hmm. And it is such a great performance because of that talk that he had with Meyer. And... If anything, it's Kirk who loses his shit. God! Yeah. And it's that, like, that calculating, that just, like, calm demeanor, but that, like, slow, grumbling, physical, mental, and tactical threat that Khan represents throughout the entire movie that really makes him one of the most memorable antagonists in science fiction. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Then you have a new character, Savick, played by a then-unknown Kirstie Alley. She had actually moved to Los Angeles to work as an interior designer and pursue Scientology. Uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, her religious beliefs not too far from her interests in uh, entertainment. She uh, is actually a massive Star Trek fan as well. Mm. She uh, that's how weird how that works. As, yeah, right. That's what helped her get into the role. Actually, um, she uh, was again not even there to pursue acting. Kind of ended up falling into it. This is her first role, and one thing that helped to get her the role was that she walked into the audition room, perfectly did the. Um, which call it the live uh, long and prosper, live long hand, prosper sign. hand sign and all that. And uh, just to bold everybody over. And so they, they, it's, it's tough to do. I had to learn it. It's like a thing in uh, some Jewish ceremonies. Hmm. That's how I, and it's like, it's weird muscle memory. You can't just like, Pop that middle finger, ring finger split, like, without a little bit of practice first. She also, apparently as a little girl, she'd always dreamed of playing Spock's daughter uh, in, in a thing. Aww. And uh, the role almost went to Kim Cattrall of Sex and the City fame. I would have known her of Mannequin 2 fame by that point, but Absolutely. That would, uh, quibbling. Meyer says that it's actually ironic that he gave her uh, her big break and she does her sense of humor, her wry kind of sarcastic delivery is like barely there, and that's what she would end up being most known for. Uh, well, we've talked about some humans. Now let's talk about machines and bringing in industrial light and magic to the project. The uh, issues they had with the first movie had a lot to do with the effects that they put into it and having issues with spreading themselves too thin, uh, not having enough time to edit the effects shots because of deadlines and all that. So they knew they needed to outsource for this movie. And they turned to Industrial Light and Magic, a fairly new effects team. This was, of course, formed by George Lucas with the help of uh, John Dykstra in the late 70s. They end up forming a computer division led by Edwin Catmull to fully commit to CGI animation, which is a big important part uh, with Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. We'll get into it. And this movie, it's a huge, huge milestone. We're getting into it right now. They create their first in-house completely computer-generated sequence for this film, and it is called the Genesis Sequence. And if you look back on it, it looks like nothing. It is like a planet Earth, and then these like it simulates what the Genesis terraforming device can do. Um, and it, but it was this massive, groundbreaking, huge moment in oh, CG. Those were those polygons were textured. There was lighting effects. Like it wasn't just a white. It doesn't look bad. Yeah, I will also say it holds up. Like it doesn't look like some. You know what it is? In in what it weirdly enough, what should have been this photorealistic wowie zowie moment still works as a quickly slapped together in AutoCAD by an engineer that like doesn't normally make animations. Totally, totally. Rough uh, kind of example of what the machine could do. Absolutely. But it was like, I feel like I could make that in unity now. Mm -hmm. And of course that ILM animation team would later get spun off and, and re uh, organized as Pixar animation. Well, yeah, but that moment, that sequence was the proof of concept that they needed to have Steve Jobs directly invest in them and and get to Pixar. It was literally that exact moment of uh, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan that changed the course of history for CG animation. It's kind of wild, uh, or at least CG animation in movies especially. Uh, but uh, yeah, movie and, and uh, another impressive effects moment in the film is, of course, the nebula battle. Uh, in order to create a compelling space battle with large lumbering ships, the producers solved the issue by introducing the Mutara Nebula. The nebula, 
which took away uh, their imaging and screen abilities and turned the space dogfight into something more like a submarine battle fitting in with their nautical themes. The Nebula itself is pretty pr- fascinating. It is uh, a mixture uh, created by injecting uh, ammonia and latex rubber into a cloud tank filled with both fresh and salt water, and then they lit the tank with colored gels. And that's what creates that really trippy, really cool <laughs> visual effect. And then they added, of course, the ships via blue screen with the model ships. But it looks fucking rad, dude. And I think it... it, it the movie surprised me in so many different ways. Like the pacing of it, it makes sense for the time, right? Because stuff could be slower back then, but still the pace of it was surprisingly slow to me, which is funny because it was probably fucking rapid fire compared to what the first movie was like. Mm -hmm. And then the part where, you know, they're never in the same room. They never have that like direct in room showdown, which I think is so compelling, interesting. And then this space dog fight to end it, was both the most like chill, slow, final, big climactic fight in a movie I think I've I've seen, and yet the tension was so palpable, mm-hmm. and you were at the edge of your seat the entire time, and it just added such a unique feel to this movie. It was kind of it was very like Star Trek does with Star Wars don't, right? <laughs> it had that feeling to it the whole time. And they sold it so well and that nebula was such a big part of that. That was such a cool moment in the film in my opinion. I really like just what they did with Kirk as a character, you know, the reading glasses, just like this this you know, getting shaken up by the discovery of his son, getting shaken up by, uh, you know, the the real concern in his eyes when he looks over and sees Spock's empty chair and he realizes what's happening. And he's like pushing people over, trying to get to his friend. It hits so hard. And I think Meyer really did a great job uh, kind of he, in the director's commentary. Uh, he says his least favorite question is, Why did you do it this way? He says, it's a question I get from a lot of these people referencing Trekkers. Uh, This time, you know, he's talking about how when Khan is uh, putting the earworms in Chekhov and uh, Terrence, I think is the name of the other guy. Or Terrell. Fuck, I should look that up. I should know that. (laughs) He takes one black glove off, but doesn't take the other one off. And fans ask him for years, like, why did he do that? And he's like, because I thought it was the interesting thing to do. That's why Uh, he claims that, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, what a lot of Trek fans demand from Trek, that everything be tied to what's been established in the past, that everything happened for a coherent reason, that every rivet and panel on each ship is accounted for is like antithetical to the way you should make art. That, uh, you know, by making weird little choices, by having spontaneous little things, you invite the viewer to invest their own meaning in what things in what's happening on the screen and how it's, uh, you know, it was his own thing. You know, people talk about the earworms and he says that, you know, I don't know, I had this image and I thought it was scary. I, I thought it would make the film more interesting. Uh, shout out to the puppeteer who made sure that the earworm had a little flicky tongue. So right before it enters your fucking brain, it gives you a little like, yum. Yeah, (laughs) this this section of my notes is titled, Ooh, fuck those seti eels. (laughs) These gross moments in the movie were overseen by visual effects supervisor Ken Ralston. Uh, If these fucking gross-ass worm things look a little familiar, Ken Ralston just finished up on the creature design for Return of the Jedi, and I can see a little bit of similarity with that and the, you know, all the Jabba the Hutt grossness that you you get to enjoy at the beginning of that movie. Uh, He would tie string to the little creatures and use that to slide the eels across the actors' faces. I would have killed him for doing that to me. Ralston said they filmed it in three different ways. There was a dry shot, then there was one with some blood, and And then, uh, as he referred to it, the Fangoria shot (laughs) with a lot of gore. And I feel like we got more on the heavy side of that. It it comes out of nowhere. It's so gross and awful. Uh, And uh, good on you. Good on you, Ken Ralston and Star Trek team. But I think that that did add some... I feel like the, the the movie would have again been a little too slow and uninteresting in the beginning if they didn't ha- uh, bring in those disgusting fucking earworms. Uh, when confronted with the uh, continuity error that technically Chekhov was only introduced as a character in the second season, well after Khan had 
already done his damage and been shipped away to SETI Alpha 5. And so he would never have recognized him. Uh, To that, Meyer says, he doesn't care. (laughs) There you go. In ancillary novels, uh, they established that Chekhov was on the Enterprise. He was just working the night shift at the time. Did we also talk about how Ricardo Montalban is, uh, Khan is sitting throughout the film, largely due to back problems that he was suffering through? No. I think that that, uh, again. But he lifted a whole big beam (laughs) and he lifted Chekhov with his very convenient lift a guy in a spacesuit handle. (laughs) Yeah, I think that definitely added like a cool vibe to the character that was totally just because of technical issues that he was having, bodily issues that he was having. Uh, also, Meyer, uh, there was a in-person face-off between Kirk and Khan in the script. It was director Nicholas Meyer who put the kibosh on that. He, uh, he always felt it would be cheesy uh, to have that in the movie, and I agree with him. But there is one regret he does have, and that is that Khan never gets to see Kirk flying away safely Mm. to see that he lost and he feels like that should have happened in the movie that Khan's last moment Khan thinks that he sacrificed himself to still accomplish his task and uh he wished that he had given that moment to the film where Khan has to see Kirk fly away and realize that it was all for naught but anyways I I still works I think I think it's still such a uh Solid, solid film. I, I I don't know if it needs it even. Another way to save money on the movie was to not rehire the expensive composer on the first movie. <laughs> uh, that was Jerry Goldsmith, who was known for scores for such films as Chinatown and Patton. Instead, they landed a newcomer. Uh, you already brought him up, James Horner, uh, who had recently been cutting his teeth on scores for films by legendary B-movie director and producer Roger Corman. So that means he had like very little under his belt, that he was a truly an up-and-comer. Uh, the producers asked Corman to come up with something more modern sounding to get away from the generally standard at the time John Williams type scores uh, that, you know, Star Wars composer and whatnot. Uh, and with such a character based film, Horner's different tracks served as leitmotifs for the characters. The main theme is Kirk's theme. Khan's is intentionally more chaotic to showcase his madness. And Spock's is a warmer motif to soften him a little bit uh, when he's on screen, which I think you really get a sense of it when you're having that nebula showdown and you can hear the scores go back and forth between Kirk's and uh, Khan's and everything and even Spock's. And it becomes this really, really interesting, like clashing of all these different types of sounds, but they all flow together really well. Great job with that. It really helps with something, yeah, like that, like you said, in the nautical battle where, like, instead of just having generic fight music, you can hear motifs rise and fall as the battle goes or doesn't go an individual uh, character's way. Horner was has been criticized for uh, self-plagiarism. Mm. Uh, a lot of the music uh, from Rathacon, uh, people have pointed to that it very closely resembles music that he wrote originally for Battle Beyond the Stars, which was a Corman joint. Wrath of Khan music then kind of makes their way into some of his other movies, but... It really, it's just so fucking good. It really carries a lot of the movie. The oh, If we can just play uh, from the Death of Spock track where like it really just ramps up and then it bleeds into the theme of the movie itself. It's so just like epic. And he does add those synthesizers in there and things to really give it more of a modern feel. It works incredibly well. And I, yeah. And again, how they managed to make a better movie by cutting corners at all costs, I will never understand. But I'm glad that such a story exists. Well, you know, Myers uh, appreciates the limitations that, you know, he if he had been given an infinite budget, 
it would have made him sloppy. It would have made the movie sloppy by like actually rehearsing with actors because time is money on the set by, you know, actually storyboarding every single effect shot ahead of time before they even started filming, knowing like this is all we get. We, we hired ILM. We don't get to redo this. This is what has to happen. Really helps um, just make everything good. And there were still moments of spontaneity. There were still moments of, you know, joy on set. They got to, uh, you know, as the filming was wrapping up, they added those last few shots of uh, Nimoy grabbing Bone's face and just being like, remember, I'm doing I'm doing mind bullshit so I can come back later. Bye. <laughs> like uh, that little shot of the coffin on the Genesis planet. It's all like, you know, it's it's this amazing thing where I really feel like watching this movie with the commentary gives you a deep appreciation for Meyer's kind of attitude towards filmmaking, towards story, towards acting, towards characters. It's full of all these brilliant little lines like. When talking about Spock's death, he says, it's not a question of whether or not you killed him. It's if you killed him well, that uh, you the audience doesn't think when they watch a character die. Oh, this is because of a contract negotiation. It's because you were telling a story that people care about that. You know, the difference between a movie star is and an actor is an actor pretends to be other people. A movie star pretends other people are them. It just goes on and on. It's an incredible uh, kind of look into the creative mind. I really enjoyed engaging with this movie with Meyer kind of delivering his his thoughts throughout. Well, since it was largely a film about death, director Nicholas Meyer initially was going to name it The Undiscovered Country. This is Hamlet's description of death from the Shakespeare play. Uh, and then they wanted Vengeance of Khan. However, they had to go with Wrath of Khan because uh, the former title was too similar to George Lucas's at the time, Revenge of the Jedi. This, of course, has changed to Return, but uh, that was at a later time. So that's how they get to that. And I said that his uh, uh, his lines were literally Shakespearean, but actually I forgot they were uh, pulled from Moby Dick. Right. And a lot of the, you know, again, nautical theming and everything. But yeah, that, 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 again, Jake hit me with it. Khan's uh, uh, big final lines. To the last, I will grapple with thee. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. That is definitely my favorite part of the movie. It is so fucking good. Do you have anything else before we get to the release of the film? Ick experience. I guess uh, <laughs> I I <laughs> I get, I don't know. I just think it's a great movie that it's a lightning a real lightning in a bottle situation, and uh, it's it, there's a reason why it holds up. Yeah, it's crazy. A couple things. Uh, uh, they use Paramount's TV division to make this movie, not the film division. That's how much of a this was really made at, almost as a TV movie, but released in theaters. Like, that's how just by the fucking most basic numbers they could get. I believe it was made for, what, $15 million, I believe? I think originally it was going to only be made for $8.5 million, but they were just getting such good, you know product and the dailies and all that kind of stuff and there was hype starting to build that they ended up uh pushing the budget a little bit further but still it's very very little money and oh, uh i uh, i remember one thing i wanted to do acknowledge about the movie sure. i'm sorry for interrupting oh, is this weird i feel like i did something weird you're doing great you're killing it. oh thank god this movie has one of my favorite tropes in science fiction and in a lot of genre fiction which is uh, Carol Marcus, uh, you know, Kirk's former flame, mother of his child, the leader of the regular one Genesis project. When they're on the space station or in the bunker where they're, you know, they just did the con thing and the Genesis device was stolen. Carol uh, walks up to Kirk because he's having a sad time. And she's like, hey, what's wrong? And Kirk's like, there's a man out there I haven't seen in 15 years who's trying to kill me. You show me a son that'd be happy to help my son, my life that could have been and wasn't. How do I feel old, worn out? Like, And in the story, all of her friends were just murdered and their corpses were hanged ritualistically like meat. 
And she still has to be like, oh, Kirk, are you having a bad day? Oh, did you do a boo-boo? <laughs> are you mad because some ripped old man just like spanked you in front of your crew? Oh, tell me about it, champ. All my friends just got murdered in front of me. I had to hide in a fucking steel box with my son. But no, really, tell me about your, oh, you're having a midlife crisis. That's got to suck. <laughs> Nice. Oh, just same as Princess Leia, whose entire planet got evaporated and is still like, oh, farm boy, you sad because your old man guy got uh, this, this. Right. So the movie comes out during one of the craziest release years of all time. It is sixth highest grossing that year, but it does have the largest opening weekend gross in the history uh, at that time. And yeah, Raiders, E.T., all sorts of crazy good stuff came out during that that's that year and especially that summer. Also, it does killer on home video. Of course it does. I mean, this is the thing. I will a weird fact when you get into this kind of stuff with the numbers, it actually did not technically do as well as uh, the first movie. But because the budget was so low, the overhead was way crazier mm-hmm. and they made way more of a profit. Uh, and that's just how it works. So I think that uh, this movie saved the day for the franchise. Star Trek three was greenlit the opening day, I believe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it took everybody by by surprise. I, I don't read. I didn't read a single quote from anyone saying like, "Yeah, we knew this was going to be an explosion <laughs> of popularity." Uh, and since then, I feel like it's had such a massive effect on pop culture and the like. I do wonder if uh, we talked about this while we were watching it. If uh, a lot of the con end of things, design wise, was inspired by Mad Max, definitely has um, a deserty like. And, and even they talk about the costume directors. They were like they had to create their outfits out of found materials <laughs> and that kind of stuff, which really speaks towards like the Mad Max thing. So the I th- chronologically, Mad Max Two wasn't there for them to be inspired by, but uh, for since you know they definitely did draw on biker culture mm. as any uh, as an inspiration for the outfits. They wanted them. To have this like sense of menace and power and like wild freedom that people associate with biker gangs, the camaraderie, all of it, uh, the des- and you know, then they add that level of desert desperation found scrapped idea. If you watch the first Mad Max, which had come out, it, it very it is not like beyond Thunderdome fashion. It's like kind of a different universe in a lot of ways. Um, so I don't think that connection holds up. I think it's just bikers were in the zeitgeist desert. You're going to end up with that aesthetic anyway. Yeah, I can see it. I've got one more quote uh, to close things out. Do you have anything else you want to say about this filmic experience before I read it and we uh, call it a day, Jake? Uh, Meyer, towards the end of his uh, director's commentary, talks about uh, how he kind of, you know, this thing became his life. He kind of hitched his wagon to the Star Trek franchise and said that I uh, quote, I earned my way into my affection for this material. It grew on me. I grew to love these characters and actors. Hell yeah. Nicholas Myers has to say about the strength of Montalban's performance and endurance of Khan in pop culture. Truthfully, I can't say that I predicted anything like his preeminence or anything like the stature which has been accorded this movie as a total construct. Never. I did know as I was watching Montalban in his first scenes in the cargo bays that I was watching a very great actor and I had had no idea. I remember thinking as I watched him and he was breaking my heart that he should play Lear. He made some self-deprecating comment about his accent, which I remember thinking was completely irrelevant, notwithstanding any Hispanic inflection. His enunciation, his articulation was perfect. That's as close as I came to realizing that Khan had a kind of Lear-like grandeur when played by this guy. The arrogance and the pain walked hand in hand. Which I thought that was great. The arrogance and the pain walked hand in hand. And that is a great way to summarize Khan. All you had to do was just just a phone call. Just a, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> hey, how's it going? Oh, SETI Alpha 6 exploded and knocked your planet off course and it doomed everybody to live in a wasteland forever? Oh, geez, we'll come get you. Sorry about that, right? bud. All it, all it, just a phone call. Just a phone call. Ugh. 
Uh, all right. I think that's it. That's our episode on Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. Thank you so much for joining us today for this one. I'm so glad I had an excuse to finally watch this really, really good movie. Uh, if you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do weekly bonus episodes for just $5 a month. We also have ad free of these episodes on the main feed, as well as for $15 a month. You can join us on our su- Sunday study session where, hey, this week we uh, watched Wrath of Khan. This next week, uh, we're doing our production schedule, actually, and coming up with the episodes we're going to be doing over uh, the next few months. So it's always a good time. Definitely check us out on there. Also, also check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenatures. Oh, I'm streaming Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, I also stream uh, on Wednesday on LPN TV with Jake, on a show called Tears of the Clown. Uh, check us out. We're making tier lists. It's always a blast. And Jake, I think you do a little streamy stream yourself. Is that right? Oh, yeah. If you check me out Thursday nights, I and the guys of my uh, puppet VTuber avatar, Puppet Jared, host a weekly watch-along of some of the most bizarre, gobsmackingly out-of-touch and uh, nigh-forgotten, nearly-lost media animated shows of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's called The Cartoon Dumpster, and you can watch it Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash puppetjarrett. All right, and hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. From hell's heart, I whiz at thee. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer... Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.